we are starting a brand new series today called A Weary World Rejoices. And many of you may recognize that as a line from the old hymn, O Holy Night. And that line was written to describe the state of the world when Jesus came. I would say, though, however, that 2,000 years later, we find ourselves in a similar world. I think we would describe our nation and our world very much as, as being weary. This pandemic that we have faced um, has just gone on for so long that I, I think that weary is, um, is an adequate word. And I would say that our nation is, is the most weary I've ever seen it in my lifetime. I remember the, the Great Recession that started in 2008 and how tough that was. Uh, the stock market tumbled. Housing prices plummeted. Uh, banks were failing. The only people who could get loans were the people who really didn't need the loan in the first place. Um, it, it was just a tough time economically. And, and I've heard stories as well from the 1970s uh, and all that people faced then where they would have to, to wait in, in long lines for hours to get gas for their car, um, where, where inflation was so bad that if you went to get a mortgage on a house, you were going to get an interest rate of 19 or 20 percent uh, on that loan. In fact, times were so difficult then that in 1979, then-President Jimmy Carter made a speech to the nation that became known as the Malaise speech, where he basically said the problem with our country is that everybody is in a bad mood. And the country actually agreed with him. It's just in the next election, they blamed him for their bad mood, and he was soundly defeated. Both of those times were tough, but, but I don't think they're as tough as what we are facing now. And I think it's because everything is constantly changing. And it's hard to plan, and it's hard to know what is next because of, of all the changing protocols and all the information that's coming out. In fact, I'm old enough to remember when at the beginning of this thing, they told us if we would just stay home for two weeks, if we would shelter in place for two weeks, then it would all go away and we'd all be fine. And then two weeks turned into two months and now two years, and we're tired. I think we're weary. Some of you in here, maybe I could say a, a lot of you in here would say, you know, regardless of what the nation is going through, I feel weary individually. Regardless of the pandemic, I just feel weary. And maybe it's related to your job, or maybe it's related to a relationship, or maybe it's related to finances, or maybe it's related to a health issue. But you would just say, you know, right now I feel weary. And that's what we're going to talk about in this series. And today we're going to open this series by talking about when weariness transitions to a place called hopelessness. So let's start with a couple of definitions. Weary or its noun form, the word weariness is defined this way as extreme tiredness or fatigue. This is something that all of us have experienced at one time or another. And there may be many of you in here right now and you would say, yes, that describes me. If I sat down with you and I said, how are you doing? And you went beyond the superficial, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm good. If you were honest with me, you would say, you know, right now, I am just tired. I feel weary. And maybe it's related to your job. Uh, 2021 has become known as the year of the great resignation. More people have voluntarily resigned their jobs this year than in any year prior. And I think it's related to the pandemic and all the changes and all the uncertainty. More people have quit their job than ever before. And maybe you would say, yes, yeah, my job. And I'm just tired. I'm tired of my boss. I'm tired of my employees. I'm tired of my coworkers. I'm tired of doing what I do. I'm just 
tired. Or maybe it's related to finances. And you get to the end of every month, and it's month after month. It's the same story. You get to the end, and you think, who am I going to pay? How am I going to pay it? Who's going to get paid this month, and who's not? And you're just, you're just tired from being in the same financial situation. Or maybe it's related to a relationship with a spouse or a parent or a child. And you think, we just keep having the same arguments over and over and over, and I'm just tired. Or maybe it's related to a health situation. Uh, and, and you're tired of going to the doctor. You're tired of the treatments. You're tired of the pain. Or you're tired of trying to figure out what the new normal for you is going to be. And if I sat down with you and asked you, and you were honest, you would just say, yes, right now, I just feel tired. And it's not a physical tiredness. It's an emotional tiredness. It's a mental tiredness. It's a spiritual tiredness. And you would say, I'm just tired. However, there's another step down on this emotional ladder, and this step down is called hopelessness. Hopelessness is a feeling or state of despair or a lack of hope. Hopelessness is when weariness goes to a place of saying, and this will never change. My situation will not improve. For me, there's just no hope. And there may be a few of you in here today, and this is where you find yourself. All of us have experienced weariness. I, I might say most of us, maybe right now, we, we, we would say, yeah, I'm weary. But hopelessness is a rung down on that emotional ladder and is a dangerous place. And if you're here today and this is where you find yourself, this is a great Sunday for you to be here. Because we are going to look at a couple from the Bible who found themselves in that state. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to the book of Luke. Luke is in your New Testament. It's the third book, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke opens his story of Jesus by describing Israel as being in a very dark and difficult time. The people in that day, they were certainly weary. Uh, one reason was they were under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire. They were tired of paying high taxes to support the lavish lifestyle of the Roman emperor. They were tired of being under Roman rule. Everyday life for them was just hard. Getting something to eat was difficult at best and on some days was just impossible. And so they were just tired from life. But as well, there was a spiritual weariness that they were going through. The religious system in that day was extremely legalistic and very burdensome. Those who were in political power were in bed with those who were in religious power, and they made people jump through all kinds of hoops in order to connect with God. And they would say, if you want to be right with God, then you need to follow all of these rules and all of these religious practices. And so for the average Israelite, their religious system did not make them feel closer to God just made them tired. They just felt weary. And so in this context, Luke introduces us to a couple who themselves were extremely weary as well. So if you've got a Bible with you, this is starting in chapter 1, verse 5. Here's what we read. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. 
both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Okay, stop there for a minute. Luke here introduces us to a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Zechariah was one of about 8,000 priests living in Israel at that point. They were divided into 24 divisions with roughly 300 priests in each division. And not only was he a priest, but Zechariah and Elizabeth were both very righteous in the eyes of God. This did not mean that they were sinless. It did not mean they were blameless. It just meant that they loved the Lord and they tried their best to follow his laws. However, for them, there was something missing in their lives. For years, for decades, they had prayed and prayed and prayed that the Lord would give them a child, and yet it never happened. And in that day, you have to understand this, in that day, being childless was considered to be a punishment from God. Those who were unable to have children, it was assumed, had sinned in some way, and God's punishment on them was childlessness. Except Luke here makes it very clear that, that it was not the sin of Zechariah and Elizabeth that caused them to not have children. They followed God's laws. Luke makes it very clear that they were righteous and yet they did not have children, which only added to their weariness. Not only were they tired because they had prayed and prayed and prayed and they had never been given a child by God. At the same time, they experienced the shame of judgment from others who looked at them and said, you've never had children. God is punishing you. There's some sin in your life that has caused this. And add to this the fact that they were well along in years. And because they were well along in years and their prayers had gone for decades without being answered, they had pretty much resigned themselves to the fact that for them, it was just not going to happen. So we could describe them as weary, and likely we could describe them as being hopeless. However, in the midst of their weariness and their hopelessness, God does something big. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Okay, again, stop there. This was a big deal for Zechariah. Uh, according to historical text, if a priest was chosen to go into the temple and burn incense on behalf of the people, he would never be allowed to do it again. Meaning this was the highlight of his career. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah to be able to do this. He went into a place that was called the holy place. Uh, as he walked in there, he would have seen to his left the seven-candled menorah. To his right was a table, and on top of the table was what was called the showbread. This was bread that was replaced on every Sabbath and left there. Directly in front of him was the altar of incense, 
uh, with the smoke from the incense rising up. Beyond that altar was the massive purple curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat and where in the average Jewish mindset, God himself resided. No one went into the holy of holies except for the high priest who just went one time a year to make atonement for the people. Zechariah went into that place and he saw all of those things, including that massive curtain, which, by the way, that same curtain 30 years later would be torn into from top to bottom, signifying that God had bridged the gap between him and man through the death of Jesus. And there was no longer a need for a division between the people and between God. Zechariah stood in that holy place, taking it all in for what was likely the greatest moment of his life. Then suddenly everything changed. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incest. Incest. Incense. (laughs) This will be edited out for the (laughs) video. You know the number of hours I speak each year? (laughs) You guys give me a little bit of grace here. Let's try this again. All right, rewind. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Okay, again, stop there. There there in front of Zechariah was the altar with the incense rising up and then in between that altar and the table with showbread, suddenly there appears an angel and Luke tells us that Zachariah was gripped with fear. Uh-huh, I would have been too. There's not an angel, then suddenly there's an angel? Yeah, I, I would have I fallen over with a heart attack right then. Now Luke gives no description of this angel. I wish he had. Did the angel have wings or no wings? Was there a halo or no halo? You know, was he young or old? We don't know. But we do know that he was otherworldly enough to scare Zechariah half to death. Then the angel gives Zechariah a message. Here it is, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah." to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, stop there for a moment. After that initial shock, Zechariah gets what was the best news of his life. After all the years of suffering with infertility, after all the years of praying, after all the years of shame of others judging them for not having a child, After all of these decades of longing and hoping and wishing and praying, 
they finally get this wonderful gift. And not only are they getting a child, but the angel tells them that they will have a son, which was a big deal because that meant the family name could carry on. And not only were they getting a child, and not only were they getting a son, but their son would be the precursor to the Messiah, the one who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And not only were they getting a child, and not only were they getting a son, and not only would this son be the precursor for the Jewish Messiah, but as well, they were getting a Messiah. A Messiah that had been long anticipated by the people of Israel. This was the best news ever. And Zechariah and Elizabeth in this moment became the ultimate worst to first couple in the Bible. They were the 1991 Atlanta Braves of the Bible. No kids, shame, decades of childlessness to not only are you getting a son, but he will pave the way for the Messiah. Now, the angel says that this son is to be named John. If you've been in church any amount of time, you recognize this as John the Baptist. John went out into the desert, and he went to the Jordan River south of Jerusalem, uh, uh, south of the Sea of Galilee, and there he preached out in the desert on the banks of the Jordan River, and people came from miles around to hear him preach. Uh, Religious leaders came from Jerusalem, to hear what all the fuss was about. People came from all of the villages to hear John preach, not just because he was a great orator, which he was, but because his words had life. And the tired, dead religion that they had experienced in the temple in Jerusalem suddenly came to life with John. And he called on people to repent And they agreed and they said, John, what should we do? We want to repent. We want to walk with the Lord. He said, as a sign of your repentance, get baptized. And so John baptized in the Jordan River hundreds, thousands of individuals. So much so that he became known as John, not John the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but as John the baptizer. So this angel appears and gives Zechariah, this tremendous news. But then Zechariah opens his big mouth and things take a turn for the worse. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Now notice Zechariah, he had been married long enough to know the correct verbiage. He said, I am an old man, but I cannot call my wife old, even if she's older than me. That's not the right term. This angel might blab. It might get back to Elizabeth. So I am old and my wife is well along in years. Now it's interesting that this was the very thing that he had spent decades praying for. And suddenly he doubts the words of the angel. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why he doubts, but I think we know it had just been so long. He had given up on the idea of having a child. He still prayed for this child. He still asked God. They still longed for a child, but as the years turned into decades, in his mind, that ship had sailed, and it was just never going to happen for them. And yeah, he and Elizabeth may have still prayed, 
for this child, but their prayers became these rote, just traditional prayers, almost like saying God is great, God is good before a meal. Just didn't have much punch. There wasn't a lot of hope there. He had gone from weariness to hopelessness. So he hears the great news, you're going to have a son, and he says, you've got to be kidding me. How can this be so? I'm old. My wife is well along in years. Nothing good has happened to us. This prayer has gone unanswered. How can we believe that this would change now? Verse 19. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Aha. So the angel here reveals who he is. And he says, I am Gabriel. Now in the Bible, Gabriel makes three appearances. Once here to Zechariah, once just a short time later to Mary, but then once about 600 years before this to Daniel. Meaning that Zechariah would have known the name Gabriel and quite possibly he appeared to other people as well. We just do not have it recorded here. And so when the angel says, I am Gabriel, he was essentially saying to Zechariah, why are you questioning my words? You need to understand, I'm not just a run-of-the-mill angel. I am part of God's inner counsel. I, 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 am, I am part of upper management. I'm not just a day laborer here. I know what God is thinking and what God is going to do. I know what I'm talking about and what I've told you will come true. That's the good news for Zechariah, that what the angel said was definitely going to happen. However, here's the bad news, verse 20. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Oh, no. Gabriel tells Zechariah that because you have doubted, you will be muted until the day that John is born. Which was just heartbreaking for Zechariah. He prayed for a child for years and years and decades. And now he finds out, I'm going to have a child but I can't tell anybody. If you've ever been through this, you know that when you find out you're pregnant or your wife is pregnant, what's the first thing you want to do? Tell the world. And as soon as it's appropriate, you announce to everyone, we're having a kid, celebrate with us. Isn't this great? And Zachariah is told, guess what? Because of your unbelief, as a reminder to you that you have doubted, you will be silenced until the day this child is born. So the angel then leaves, and Zechariah, the old priest, is standing there in the holy place, incense rising up, just wrapped in silence, taking in all that has happened to him. And here's what happens next. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So Luke here tells us a couple of things. One is the people thought something has happened to Zechariah. This normally doesn't take long. 
priest goes in, he lights the incense, he offers prayers on behalf of the people. Traditionally, he would come out and he would then speak a blessing over the people who had gathered there to worship. But Zechariah doesn't come out. And, and they may have wondered if he had died in there, potentially. And do we need to go in and get Zechariah? And so they're wondering and they're waiting. And then finally he comes out and Luke tells us that he was unable to speak, but he kept making signs to them. Luke does not tell us what those signs were, but I'm very curious. Was this a sign? I saw an angel and I'm, you know, I'm going to have a baby. What was it? Some kind of charades that he did? We're not sure, but he kept making signs to the people. So they knew something had happened. Then verse 23, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown me favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, later on in Luke's account, he describes how this message of Gabriel became reality. Elizabeth gave birth to a son named John, and just a short time later, Zechariah was able to speak, and when he spoke, his first words were praise to God, who gave them a son and a redeemer for Israel. Now, we love stories like this. In fact, this story would make a great Christmas Hallmark movie. There's some kind of problem. This young couple's struggling. For years, they struggle. For three quarters of the movie, there's this insurmountable problem that they just can't seem to overcome. And then in the last 15 or 20 minutes of the movie, everything works out. The problem is solved. And Zachariah and Elizabeth and little baby John ride off into the sunset as the credits begin to roll. And the narrator comes on and says, and they lived happily ever after. We love these stories. I mean, this is how we want life to go, except we know that life isn't always a Hallmark movie. Sometimes life goes as we would want it to go, and then sometimes life disappoints us. In researching for today, I, I came across an article published sev several years ago in USA Today about the biggest marketing disappointments or product disappointments over the last several decades. See if some of you are familiar with these products that did not live up to their hype. Here's the first one, Google Glass. Does anyone know the glasses? They came out in 2013. They discontinued in 2014. It turns out people could not use their smartphone, which was on the glasses, without their hands. It just did not work. I think they have an updated version out now, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, it's not, you know, people driving while they're seeing information, it doesn't work very well. Okay. The next one, Satisfries. Does anyone remember Satisfries? This was Burger King's Healthy Fries. <laughs> if you go to Burger King, you're not after health food, right? Uh, th these, I think, came out in 2012, and they lasted for about five minutes before they discontinued <laughs> Satisfries. Uh, Cheetos Lip Balm. I did not research this one because I can tell by the name. <laughs> that one's not going to work. Windows Vista. Now, I'm a Mac guy, so I don't have to deal with stuff like this, but some of you are old enough to remember what a colossal failure Windows Vista was. Uh, that one did not live up to its hype. Here's another one I did not research, but I can only imagine. Harley Davidson perfume. <laughs> What's that smell like? 
And here's one, and this is probably the biggest failure of all time, New Coke. Back in the 80s, anybody remember New Coke? That one bombed. All of these products, expectations were up here, reality was way down here. That's how life is sometimes. Zachariah and Elizabeth started off expecting to have children. They thought, just like everyone else, they would have kids. Expectations were way up here. And as the years turned into decades, reality ended up down here. Now, all of us have experienced this to some level or to some degree at one time or another. However, sometimes life will give us a biggie-sized drink of disappointment. And when that happens, we can go from weariness to a place called hopelessness, where life just seems like it's never going to get better. What do we do? If you're in a place where weariness has dragged on for so long that you now feel like you're hopeless and you're struggling, what is it that you can do? Very quickly, three things. This is on your message map if you've got it with you. When I'm feeling hopeless, I will, number one, trust in God's timing. This is the big truth that we see in this story. For Zachariah and Elizabeth, they thought that God had forgotten about them. For decades and decades, they had prayed and prayed and God had not answered their prayer and they had gotten to the place that they were weary and hopeless. What they did not understand is that God was right there with them the entire time. And God understood that his plan was perfect and they needed to wait because God had a plan that was much bigger than just giving them a child. So that today, 2,021 years after this event that we just read about, you and I are in church talking about this couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. What God had planned for them was so much more than just a child, but it was to be part of God's greater story by giving them a son that would be a precursor for the Messiah. If what you're hoping for has yet to become reality, that does not mean that you're without hope. If you follow Christ, there is always, always hope. God can invade in a moment into your situation and change it completely. And you may go for weeks and weeks or months and months or even years before you're able to see the why behind God having you to wait, or you may even go decades without seeing the why behind God having you to wait, or it might not be until eternity that you're able to see the curtain pulled back and understand why God had you wait. And yet we serve a God whose timing is perfect and who is in perfect control. And so when God's timing seems like he's not coming through, we trust that he knows exactly what he's doing. Number two, when I feel hopeless, I will remember my real home. When life doesn't go as planned, what it does is it reminds us that this is not to be our forever home. This is not the place that we are to stay forever. In fact, when life is going really, really well, our hearts will become tethered to this world and we began to put our hope in things that were never meant to be hope carriers. And so we put our hope in that person or that thing and then it disappoints us and we become hopeless 
And God's saying you were never to put your hope in that, your ultimate hope in that, anyway. There's an article that I came across uh, in researching for this sermon uh, from a website called the Gospel Coalition. And here's what this author said. Even on this side of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, there is brokenness in our world that no cart full of Black Friday bargains can fix. There is a hunger in our soul that no plateful of pumpkin custard can fill. There is a twistedness in our hearts that no terrestrial hand can touch. The whole creation, the Apostle Paul declared, has been groaning together for redemption. When life disappoints us, it reminds us that we live in a broken world. And, and, and this is not our forever home. And so disappointment has a way of turning our eyes heavenward and reminding us that we are ultimately citizens of heaven. And then finally, here's the last thing. When I feel hopeless, I will practice thankfulness. At the end of the day, as hard as it is, and, and as difficult as circumstances might be, what determines our hopelessness or our weariness is not our circumstances, but our focus and our attitude. How do I know this? Because I've observed human nature. And one person can seemingly have everything and have a sour attitude. Somebody else can have nothing or have tragedy after tragedy strike their life. And they still seem to have this positive outlook and this happy demeanor. And they talk about the Lord in a way that makes me think that they've received everything that they've ever asked for. I remember years ago when I started out in my, my first church, we had a vacation Bible school. And lots of kids came to the vacation Bible school who did not go to our church. And so we got all their names and we registered all, all the kids and they gave us our, their address. And after that week, we went through the list of names and we identified those kids who did not go to our church. And we took that list and we divided them among, uh, among the different pastors on staff. And we said, okay, we're going to go visit all of these kids, all of their families, take them some information about our church and invite them to our church. And so there were a couple of boys, young boys that had come to our vacation Bible school. They were brothers. They put their name, put their address down, and, and I was assigned to go visit them. This was before GPS. This was before everybody had an iPhone or a navigational system in their car. So I had to look up their address. It was, it was unfamiliar to me, and I found it, and I found directions on the map of how to get there and started off down this main road and then turned onto this secondary road and then turned off onto a, a really rough gravel road and then turned off of that onto this dirt road. Um, at the time, I drove a Honda Accord, and I can remember on that dirt road feeling every bump and every rock on that rough dirt road that sort of wound me up into the country. And then finally, I got to this one tiny mobile home sitting out in a field. I found a mailbox, and I had to check the address, make sure it was right, and I compared it to the, to the mailbox, and it was right, and so I thought, well, this is it. I went up and I, I knocked on the door and this elderly lady answered the door. They had a porch out front, although that's not really the right term. It was just sort of a metal platform. So I backed up, back down the stairs. She came out onto that metal platform and I said, are you Mrs. So-and-so? And she said, no, I'm not. And I said, well, um, there are two boys here. Do you know these two boys? She said, yes, those are my grandsons. And I said, well, they came to our vacation Bible school and I'm with this church and 
we're just wondering if you guys have a church home and can I give you some information about our church? And she said, oh, thank you so much for coming. They live here with me. I sent them to your Bible school. And she said, I've got a church. In fact, you passed it when you came down that country road, this little, little church there. I said, yeah, I, I remember passing that. She said, we go to church there and we are just so blessed and we are so thankful for our church. God has been so good to us. And, and I'm so glad that my sons were able to come to your Bible school. I've just been blessed to have my sons and and, and God has been so good to me to allow me to have these sons and to raise these sons. And she continued in that same vein as I sat there and talked to her for 15 or 20 minutes. And as I pulled away, I thought, I guarantee you, this is not what she dreamed would happen. That, that wherever her husband was, I, I don't know, her daughter, her son-in-law, I don't know. I, I know that she didn't dream that she would live in this tiny trailer where they didn't have much and that she would raise her boys there. But she chose not to focus on any of those things. Instead, to focus on all that God had given to her. There is something about thankfulness that changes our hearts and it changes our attitudes and it gets us through those difficult times to focus not on what has not happened or happened to us, but on all that God has given to us.